Welcome to the New Hope Sermon of the Week. We hope you are encouraged by this message by Pastor Tom Sturbins. This morning, I, I, I sort of wanted to revisit my uh, inadvertent Bible study from last week. And the inadvertent Bible study was this. Uh, well, let's just jump into it real quick, and I'll tell you the Bible story over again. But I began looking at places in Scripture where it showed up. Last week, the declaration that found us, and when I say found us, it was another one of those moments where, uh, very strangely, I felt like God gave me two words to preach, and it was look again. Look at the person next to you and loudly say, look again. So l- let me tell you where that started from. Now, let me say this. <clears throat> I believe the book of Revelation is a handbook on worship. I don't believe its primary value to us is to de- for purposes of developing end-time charts and outlines so that we can know who the two witnesses are, who the Antichrist is, and the exact hour and moment that Jesus will return. I don't think that's the primary reason. Now, <clears throat> because we have read it that way, and ironically, the word I mentioned last week is one of the reasons that some of those interpretations come out. 36 or 37 times the phrase is used, and I saw. John the Revelator. John who wrote the Gospel of John. John who writes the, the three epistles of John, 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John. That's the same John. John, is argue, John arguably sees... Uh, as much or more than anyone, and he writes about seeing and beholding. In John chapter 1, verse 14, after describing the birth of the Son of God and uniquely Joanine or terms that John would use, he gets to verse 14 and, he, you know, after saying the Word, in the beginning was the Word and the Word was with God and the Word was God and the Word came and dwelt among us. And uh, the light shined in darkness, and the force of darkness could not either understand it or could not restrain it. The word means both things. Doesn't get it. Beloved, is it not wonderful to know that those moments that the light of God's word just comes and manifests itself and shines in your life, that it sends hell scurrying at 360,000 miles per second, the speed of light, that in those moments... For you to stand up and praise in the aftermath of receiving bad news about your job or a medical report absolutely makes hell flee at the speed of light. Hell doesn't get that because that's not what you're supposed to do. And one more time, for the billionth time, hell is saying, I don't get it. I can't comprehend it and I can't restrain it. Somebody needs to hear me this morning. That that is an amazing provision. But after he goes through all of that, he gets to verse 14 and he says, And we beheld the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. And the question is, how do you see grace and how do you see truth? Two, Two terms we study a lot around here, but it says, We beheld the only begotten of the Father full of grace and truth. And and that word means to see and perceive with understanding. Those are the words that he uses when he starts writing the Gospel of John. And after that first chapter, it would begin sort of a historical process through the life and the times of Jesus Christ. In John chapter 2, he tells about the story of the wedding at Cana. Actually, he talks about the temple and the wedding at Cana. 
And John chapter 3 meets with Nicodemus. John chapter 4 encounters the woman at the well. John chapter 5, the man by the pool of Bethesda who's been there 38 years and can't get healed because there's no one to help him out. But Jesus walks by and says, I've got a different plan if you're open to it. John chapter 6, we just looked at this morning, the feeding of the 5,000. John chapter 7, where he, grace and truth shows up in the declaration that if you're open to me, the Holy Spirit in you will be like a fountain in your innermost being, overflowing. <clears throat> I love that. John chapter 8, he encounters a woman caught in the act of adultery, and one more time, grace and truth shows up. He unhides, that's what truth means. He unhides the real problem, and then grace is the pushback, and pushes back against the force of sin, Romans chapter 5 says that is what grace does, that where sin abounds, the grace of God overbounds and pushes back against the restraining or compressing forces of sin. And you see that grace and truth message together through every chapter of the book of John. He looks at a woman caught in the act of adultery and says, your, your sin, your, your, your addiction your identity has defined who you are, and it's trying to crush you and destroy you. But I've come to tell you today, I've come to unhide the depth of your brokenness and tell you that you have the power to walk from this moment by the force of grace to, quote, go and sin no more. You don't have to live by that dynamic. John chapter 9, he encounters a blind man that's blind from birth, and he touches his eyes and uh, and, and once again, truth unhides the possibilities of sight for a man who is firmly convinced, having lived his whole life from birth, being entirely blind. But grace shows up and pushes back against the fixed boundaries of the blindness of a blind man. And when Jesus walks away, truth is unhidden possibilities, and grace has appropriated it. And he doesn't leave a blind man behind that he found when he walked up there. I love this, I love it, I love it. John chapter 10 goes on to talk about the good shepherd who is the gatekeeper, who will open grace and truth to every one of us. John chapter 11 is Jesus outside the tomb of Lazarus who has died, and Jim, he's been dead four days. Just this week I was talking to a pastor about that. Just this week I received news of a pastor's wife for whom we had been praying, Pastor Kirk Walters and Laura. And she had fought a valiant fight with cancer, and it looked like had won, and, and the, the tests were clear, and then in the last eight weeks, it came back with a vengeance. And, and I was moved to tears sitting there, and I was reminded again how in John chapter 11, somebody here, the preacher this morning, when Jesus showed up to the tomb of Lazarus, and he had been dead four days, in verse 33, <clears throat> Mary and Martha, his sisters, are fussing about the fact that, that he's shown up late or whatever, and Jesus doesn't engage the conversation. But it says, in verse 33, it says, his spirit was, his, he was moved deeply within his spirit. And then he says, where have you laid him? Watch how little language he uses. Where have you laid the body? And they talk some more and says, we'll take you. And they're talking. He doesn't engage that conversation. And then he gets to the tomb and as he steps up to the front of the tomb for a second time in Scripture, it says, once again, he was moved deeply within. And he says, move the stone. That phrase you heard me mention some months ago in a particular moment in our own life is a complex Greek term, watch this, that means to snort with the anger, to snort like a horse with anger and indignation. 
I have my own supposition. You see, I believe in John chapter 11, it's literally only days before he's crucified and stuck in a tomb. And today as I sat weeping, excuse me, this week as I sat weeping that morning when I read the text message, and for some reason it just gripped my heart. And once again a feeling was awakened that was very similar to a morning just a couple months ago when I held a recently born granddaughter in my hands who did not survive. And I had that same sensation. It was anger. It was the snorting of a horse with indignation. It was... That's what happens in John chapter 11 as Jesus steps up. And here's what I believe was the, the communication that happened right there. I believe he stood outside the tomb of Lazarus, outside the stone that was rolled away. And I believe that he said, death, you have invaded once again. But I want you to know this isn't our last conversation. Because just four or five days after that, he would be before another stone. And scripture doesn't talk, tell us this. This is Tom's private version of the Bible. You ready for it? Because I believe, Lori, the same way that only days before, he stood on this side of a stone of death and growling in anger and disposition before he said, Lazarus, come forth. I believe he was just practicing for about four days later when he wouldn't be standing on the outside of a tombstone, but he would stand up on a Sunday morning inside a grave on the other side of a tombstone. And I believe he stood up to it and said, I already practiced four or five days ago. Move. And the Bible said that stone just rolled back. Yeah, I know it was angels. But I'm telling you that there's coming a day, beloved, at the end of the day, at the end of the age, when the Savior, I believe, will have a guttural groan for the last time. And he says, death, you've taken your last life. Sickness, you've eaten your last soul. Divorce, you've destroyed your last marriage. War, you've disrupted my planet for the last time. Starvation, you've left people short. I believe that there's going to be that final guttural groan. Anybody besides me rejoicing in that day and thus will join with Paul saying, Maranatha, even so, come quickly, Lord Jesus. Somebody praise God right there. Hallelujah. All right. That's a sermon that wasn't even in there. Let me tell you. So I'm, I'm reading all of these things. And last week when we, the great seer, John, he writes about seeing and beholding. Even in his epistles, Pastor Matt was, was sitting on, back there on the stool and he walked over and he, I talked to him about what was on my heart. And he says, he says hey, Pastor, look at, look at 1 John chapter 1. And it, once again, it's John writing that language. I see, we behold, we looked, we saw. Isn't it amazing for the person who saw more than anyone... Gabe, if you could bring up Revelation 5, right where we were last week, okay? Isn't it amazing that arguably the person in all of Scripture that saw as much as anyone, including Old Testament prophets, I mean, they, he just, he saw it, okay? That what it says here, now this is in Revelation 5, it's in writing, if you're not familiar with Scripture, 
It's describing the worship environment of heaven that I believe is going on right now. I believe they are the flip side of our coin of worship. We don't worship alone. And there's been a lot of teaching on that, that we worship with them. When Psalm 22 says, Thou art holy, O God, who are enthroned on the praises of your people, he only has one throne. I believe when we begin to worship, it's that throne that John saw, the one that Moses saw, Jim. I believe it's that throne that in the realm of the Spirit, it's suddenly in this room. Suddenly, the throne of God's kingdom rule and authority is in this place to be released through our life in prayer, praise, and the declared word of God. That's what happens in this room on Sunday morning. So he he steps up and he says, I saw on the right hand of him who sat on the throne a book written inside and on the back, sealed up with seven seals. The seven seals would indicate a will. Everybody say will. We tend to use that word in very limited or focused fashion. So when we say that a person dies, they leave a will. Or in other phrases, we say, well, you know, I just whatever God's will is or whatever their will is. But beloved, those are not separate terms. They're all the same. Matter of fact, if you ever receive anything from a will, you will be reading what the will of the person was and their intentions toward you were. This one's sealed up, and he's about to go on and say, so the will of God has been sealed up, and there's no one to open it. I I don't have time to explain this. I personally believe that God's will for the planet, to some degree, was sealed up in terms of its full intentions on the last day in the Garden of Eden. It's like, okay, this isn't going to happen yet, but it will. And it was the sun that came to openly unlock, ultimately unlock and open the word of God and its provisions for us. So when John looks, he says, I'm seeing the word of God. And I just want to ask you this morning for about four or five little prayer moments here. Here it, come, here it comes. You don't have to raise your hand. You too, like me, like we've done. I look at the word of God and I thought, There are points in that that will never be open to me. They're not possibilities. I want to tell you that God has stopped by here this morning to say, look again. Verse 2, and I saw a strong angel proclaiming with a loud voice, who is worthy to open the book and to break its seals? Let's keep going. And no one in heaven or on the earth or under the earth was able to open the book or look into it. Then I began to weep greatly because no one was found worthy to open the book or look into it. Look at me this morning. I won't have you raise your hand. But there are some sitting in this room who this week, you've read the word of God, you've seen things and tears filling your eyes because you said, there's no way that's ever going to happen for me. This morning, God would say otherwise. Watch what happens here. There's no way that it can be opened to me. I begin to weep greatly because no one's found worthy to open the book or look into it. God, there's no way it'll ever be open to me. And one of the elders said to me, stop weeping. Behold. Everybody say behold. Now remember, that elder is telling the one man in all the Bible that sees more than anybody else. This word behold. He's saying, look again. I I don't know about you, but that gives me hope because when I read all that John saw through the Gospels, his take on Jesus is different than Matthew, Mark, and Luke. He sees stuff and and writes stuff that they don't get. In the letters to John, he's seeing, he's hearing stuff about the love of God that just people don't get. I mean, John is locked in. And we get to this book. The elder says, "I, I know that you've seen everything, but you missed something. Look again. 
And the lion that is from the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has overcome so as to open the book and its seven seals. Next verse. And I saw between the throne with the four living creatures and the elders a lamb standing as if slain. Last week I went in, you, you, please go back and listen to it. Last week I went into talking about the Old Testament worship, the Holy of Holies in the tabernacle and in the temple. Please pay attention. Go home, look this stuff up, Google it, whatever. Uh, and, just, and how in, in Hebrews 9, that's the New Testament for those of you that are new, the writer to Hebrews who's writing to the Hebrews, he says, let, let me tell you about that the Old Testament worship and the New Testament, it said, I want you to know that essentially in the Old Testament, the blood of a lamb, sacrificed, killed, was required to sprinkle on the top of this mercy seat, the Ark of the Covenant. Google that and look at it. If you've never heard the phrase, the Ark of the Covenant, get your phone out and Google it right now. It'll show you a picture of it. And in that Ark of the Covenant, uh, there was a lid called the mercy seat. And on the ends, there were seraphim facing inward. And then Exodus 25 says God would come once a year, watch, and be enthroned above the mercy seat. Do you get that? He didn't sit on it. It wasn't a seat for him. God didn't make that seat for him. That seat was for the source of atonement. The blood that was sprinkled, watch, paid the price for that high priest, Old Testament, to go in once a year and that the unadulterated holy, holiness of God, then wouldn't kill him. Because, beloved, where there's no blood or no atonement of the lamb, this is according to the Old Testament, holy kills. Holy kills. The throne of holy. But I got to keep saying it because it'll change how you worship. But where the blood was applied, the high priest could come in. In the New Testament, 1 Peter chapter 2, it says, you all, we all are a priesthood. Hebrews says, who can now come boldly into the very throne of room of God, Hebrews chapter 4. But Hebrews chapter 9 says, Jesus entered and purified a holy of holies. He said, not the one in the tabernacle on earth that's a copy of the one in the heavenlies, but said, our Savior marched into the very original depiction of what we know to be the holy of holies. What does that tell us? It tells us this scene in Revelation 4. Remember the first thing John sees? He said, I saw a throne. Then I saw seraphim. And then out from that, I saw elders. And then I saw the host of heaven, the redeemed, those on the earth and under. And, and he begins to outline this sort of sequence that things appear. So there's the throne. But there's one thing in between the throne and the seraphim. Watch me. The same way that in the Old Testament, when God was enthroned, are you tracking with me? It's worth the journey. When God was enthroned above the mercy seat, then the order was there was the throne of God, then there was the mercy seat that was empty, and then out from that was the seraphim. Beloved, when Hebrews chapter 9 and Hebrews chapter 1 said he ascended to that place and he took his seat, there's only one seat that's given a name. It's a mercy seat. It's a seat of mercy. Can I tell you this? Throughout all the years, I have depicted that verse as Jesus after the ascension. And so I saw him sort of arriving. My mental image of this lamb was 
Jesus ascending, you know, after the resurrection and the days that he spent teaching uh, the disciples and his followers, and then he ascended and they watched him go. And I suppose that that is the image of the Savior that appears in the heavenlies. This one that's now, his wounds are all healed. It's 40, 50 days later. He's all good. But Dina, that's not what this scripture says, and I don't know how I missed it. Because the image of the lamb we have here isn't one that gives us warm fuzzies, Amanda. It's a savior that steps into the heavenlies, and he said, I didn't come to just bring the blood of a lamb. I came and I brought the lamb of the blood because I believe when he appeared in the heavenlies, he was still bleeding down his head from a crown of thorns that was trickling down his face. His hands were extended and still dripping from his wrist. His side was pierced. There was blood there. I believe what you see there is not this warm, fuzzy Hallmark card, but a very disrupting image of a bloody lamb that looks maybe more like, I don't know, Rambo after a bad war or something. But he steps up there fresh out of the war, Diane, and he's bearing the marks of war. He's bearing the marks of paying a price. And beloved, there's no blood sprinkled on that mercy seat, but the lamb himself says, I didn't come to sprinkle anything. I came to sit down and tell you that the provision of the blood now has transformed a throne of holy that kills. Hebrews 4 says, boldly approach a throne of grace that gives life. That's the God we worship. That's the provision of the word of God. Why is that important? Because the moments in our life when we fail to see, watch, what it is God would do and can do through us, it is always born of my failures to see the possibility of what can happen when the lamb is in the room. I want to say it again. We got to get that. Every time... I fail to see the possibilities of what God may want to be doing through me, through his word, through that scroll that's sealed. And the adversary convinced me, ain't never going to happen for you. It's not going to happen. But beloved, something begins to change when they said, when the lamb stepped in the room. When we invite the lamb, we invite the throne of God here into the room, something begins to happen. And most importantly, I believe there's something of the spirit of God that steps up to each of us and says, look again. Well, what I did this week was go through scripture, just preaching to myself, Jim, the look again moments in scripture, Exodus chapter three, you know, one of our favorite stories here, it's where God seeks to reclaim worship. He has a worship conversation in Exodus three for the first time since the garden of Eden. And he shows up there to communicate with a Moses who has lived 40 years in the wilderness. He's 40 years beyond hope. The fact that he's lived for 40 years in the wilderness, not even shepherding his own sheep. Did you know why they call the wilderness the wilderness? The wilderness was a place that doesn't even have a name. Anybody felt like where you found yourself, you don't even know how to describe it because it's not even on Siri can't help you get there. It's not even on the map. Doesn't even have a name except for an abandoned place of misery that no one knows or goes. That's the wilderness. But it's in that moment that a bush begins to burn and a voice calls out 
And, and when Moses said, I must stop and look aside, or in the language of our day today, I need to look again. So I want to say to those of you that are trapped in the wilderness this morning, and you've been there a long time, long enough to be, you know the wilderness. You're familiar with your way around it. By the way, have you ever wondered why one of the reasons for the 40 years in the wilderness? Did you know that never when Moses then for the next 40 years would lead the people through the wilderness? He never said, and there came a moment when Moses was lost. No, because Moses knew the wilderness. Nobody else may have. And you say, well, well, I felt like I've lived in the wilderness. Great, then here's the good news for you. God is about to redeem that and use you as a guide through a place that you know all too well to a new place of promise. And you're going to get to help somebody get through it because you know the territory. God can use your wilderness experience. Somebody hear me. Just go ahead and say amen whether you feel like it or not. Okay, so I'm walking out of that wilderness. The moments that I feel I'm trapped in a wilderness where no one knows and no one goes, God says, look again. Last week, we looked at the story of Elisha in chapter 2 Kings chapter 6, the, the prophet who was surrounded and cut off by the king of Aram. And his servant says, oh, no, there's tens of thousands. And the man of God turns and says, God, open his eyes. Let him see. And it said his servant looked again. And what he saw was an innumerable army surrounding what had surrounded them. And we started singing that song last week, and it says, when it looks like I'm surrounded, I'm surrounded by you. Matter of fact, when it looks like I'm surrounded, Lord, I'm surrounded by you. Just turn and say or sing that line to the person next to you. When it looks like I'm surrounded, I'm surrounded by you. The Bible, Brenda and I actually this week had fun during a morning coffee time preaching this to each other. <laughs> of all these little Bible stories, I, I just absolutely loved it. And she goes, oh, 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 the three Hebrew, Hebrew children, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, they get thrown into the fire for nothing other than being faithful worshipers of the Lord our God. And when they get thrown in the fire, it's so hot that even the people that threw them in died from the heat. And it says they fell down in the fire. Go read it, Daniel chapter 3. And they were in there, and all of a sudden, the king managed to open and look inside and said, um, I thought we threw in three. But he says, there's a fourth man in the fire, and it looks like unto the Son of God. Woo! So here's the next situation. When you feel you're stuck in a fire that's going to consume you and there's no way out and no way up, God said, look again. You're never alone. Look again. You're never alone. And of course, my favorite is on a resurrection morning when John uses four different words for see, for see. They go to a, an empty tomb but essentially, Mary goes running back to them and said, um, you need to look again. You missed the resurrected Lord. I think you ran past him. You thought he was the gardener. And it doesn't end there. Pastor Matt said, oh, Pastor Tommy says, what about Acts chapter 3 at the gate? Beautiful. There's Peter walking through. A man that's been there, he's, he's lame, can't walk, and he's begging for alms. He's begging for alms, and they look at him and say, by the way, this is a, 
what many would call a negative confession. Silver and gold have I none. <laughs> That's okay. Silver and gold have I none, but what I have I give unto you. But here's what it says. It says, they turned and fixing their gaze. In other words, they looked intently. Can I tell you something you need to write down right now? And I haven't even got to the hearing half of this, but you need to write this down. If you're not looking, you can't help anybody see. If you're not listening, you can't help anybody hear. I'm going to let you say that to each other and write it down. It's worth waiting. If you're not looking, you can't help anybody see. If you're not listening, you can't help anybody hear. Now, I'm going to get to listening somewhere in the weeks or months ahead maybe, but I just want to say this much. In the seven letters to the churches in the book of Revelation, there's three things that are said to every church every time, and one of them is this. Um, he who hears the Spirit hear what the Spirit says, and then it says, they will overcome. God intends for us to be the listening ears for the world. Please hear me. We worry, I want you to listen to what I'm about to say. We try to dumb down our faith into palatable terms that we feel like the world can hear and understand because, hey, otherwise it's so weird. Beloved, they need our weird. Because what they are going to be touched by is not the rationale of our experience, but the convicting presence of the Holy Spirit that emanates through it. When I say, I know you can't see, but I can, let me help you. Here's what it says to all seven letters of the churches. And that is, I need you hearing what the Spirit has to say. Because the world doesn't hear me, you do. You hear me, they hear you. If you don't hear me, you got nothing for them to hear. When you walk out of here with a testimony, not even in words they understand. This week, someone says, what did you do on Sunday? They tell you they went fishing or went to play golf or whatever. Good for them. You say, I was in church. What happened? Well, in church, I heard from God. I discovered that I had been looking in the wrong places. I heard a word that said, the things that I've put into my life, I expected for there to be a, a sort of spiritual mathematical equivalence that what I could get out was only equal to what I put in. But the good news is, God's the one bringing out what I put in. And the good news for me was, even things that I put in my basket that I probably shouldn't have put there, God has redeemed, I've repented of, he's set me free, and he's making stuff come out of this basket right here that I never thought was possible. They may not understand any of your basket words, but I will tell you they will be penetrated by your conviction and the presence of the Holy Spirit. The world can't hear him. We do. We hear God. They hear us. Say that with me. We hear God. They hear us. One more time. We hear God. They hear us. Now back to writing down what I told you to write down. If we're not looking, we can't help anybody see. If we're not listening, we can't help anybody hear. Thank you for joining us for the New Hope Sermon of the Week. For more information about this podcast or other resources, visit newhopeonline.com.